Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Hello and welcome to Baseball Barbacast, the only baseball podcast in the world that is actually a softball podcast. I am Jordan Schusterman, and I am very excited to be joined by a special guest co-host once again. Don't worry, Jake will be back next week, but I'm very excited for one more episode without him. It is Emma Bachelary of Sports Illustrated. Emma, thank you so much for joining me on this fine Friday. I mean, you had to have someone follow up A-Rod and who better than me, obviously. I said, who would find it the funniest to be the the uh, special guest after A-Rod? <laughs> and you seemed like a strong candidate. Uh, Emma, you are uh, talking to me on this Zoom from Oklahoma City, where last night you witnessed the Oklahoma Sooners win their third straight uh, softball national championship. And I want to begin the show with that. I know there are some people listening to this that have not watched a softball game all season, but I promise you we have to talk about this and I want to talk about this and obviously it's fresh on your mind. So we are going to spend a good amount of time on the Sooners, uh, but we're going to get to the Mets. How could we not talk about the Mets? I believe there are non-baseball podcasts talking about the Mets today because how could you not? Uh, we are going to finally talk about the Grom because I know I didn't get to touch on that on Wednesday, uh, talk about the other very disappointing NL teams, and then we will do the good, the bad, the ugly. Emma will be officially initiated into Barbacast lore with her participation into that segment. But uh, Emma, first of all, um, what 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 are you doing in Oklahoma City, and what is your normal uh, day job for the people that aren't as familiar with your work? Yes, I am normally a staff writer for Sports Illustrated, where I write usually about baseball, but also for one week every June now, uh, college softball. Women's College World Series is in Oklahoma City every year. And uh, this is the the second year I've gone and just a really cool event. Really love getting to watch the sport at this level. And yeah, hope to get to do it every year from now on. And at this point, it feels like Oklahoma will be winning it every single year because they just look that good. Yes, and we will certainly get into why that is uh, the case. And I, I, I've said before that I've been very fortunate being around the game of baseball for the last 10 years to get to do a lot of really cool stuff, World Series, you know, all-star games, postseason, you know, special, you know, field of dreams, whatever, stuff like that. 
I think Oklahoma City is above the all these other, any other possible baseball events. I, I have not done the Women's College World Series, and it is at the very top of my list of things that I would like to do. So you have been there the last two years. You've watched Oklahoma win these last two years, and you, of course, just wrote uh, today kind of recapping not just their recent championship run, but a, a more broad, comprehensive look at what this team has done. And for those who are not familiar, I mean, give the SparkNotes version, and then I'll kind of get into what amazes me so much uh, about this team. Yeah, so this was their seventh title, but it was their sixth in the last 10 years, which I think is the best look at just how overwhelming their their dominance has been. But I think what made this title kind of special is you had, you know, going back 10 years ago, you had uh, the NCAA home run queen, Lauren Chamberlain, was on this team. She was then replaced by a new home run queen, Jocelyn Allo, who set the record last year. And this year, you didn't have like one singular focal player like Chamberlain or Allo, who was, you know, dominating the record books, the clear star of this team, uh, you know, clearly leading them in the way you had those singular superstars, you know, Lauren Chamberlain in 2013, Jocelyn Allo titles in 2019-2021. You just had a really, really good, really balanced team that just dominated everything. They led the country in batting average and slugging, but they also led in ERA, ton of strikeouts on the staff, several really, really good pitchers, which, you know, in softball where you can get through most of the season with just one or two great pitchers, the fact that they had three incredible pitchers, three of the top 10 pitchers in the country is absolutely crazy. Um, Also really great defensive team, best fielding percentage in the country. And so, yeah, you had seen some really great Oklahoma teams in the, the past decade but usually those were ones who were kind of defined by a single star player. And this year you just had a team that was the best we'd ever seen, like you said, 61 and one, that's the winningest season in college softball history. Um, But what made them so special to me is just how dominant they were on every little thing and how well-rounded they were. You know, obviously you had some players who were stars more so than others. You have Jada Goldman, incredible outfielder, you know, those three pitchers I mentioned, Jordy Ball is, like an absolute psycho in the best way possible. Extreme Max Scherzer vibes, like oh, so yeah. intense. Um, but yeah, just super well-rounded, a ton of great quality players, and uh, it just won the whole Yeah, through. and what, 54 games, 55 games winning streak to finish the season? 53. 53. 53. 53. So it'll be 54 um, and 5, you know, to start next year. But we'll <laughs> get to that uh, when we when we look forward. But yeah, so head coach Patty Gasso, you know, she's talked a lot about after this win about how much pressure. By the way, the hashtag 7 Natty Patty is elite. Gotta love that from the from the Sooners fans. Uh, but she talked about how, yeah, this was the hardest one yet. And, you know, the first instinct is like, nobody's feeling bad for you, Patty Gasso, obviously, right? And I think that that's also fair, right? And there are there is a reason, as you, I think, wrote very well, and, and as you anyone promoting a story about Oklahoma is right, it's like love him or hate him, right? That is really kind of the, the status that we're at. But you have to both respect and appreciate how dominant they are, not just statistically, as you just mentioned, but it's every possible way to be good at a sport, they are doing it. Now, part of that is the transfer portal. And when you combine the fact that obviously they're going to be able to get the best recruits like Jordy Ball, and they clearly have some of the best player development that you're going to have, right? I know Patty Gasso's son, JT Gasso, has been talked about a lot as as one of the best hitting coaches at the softball, you know, the D1 softball level. But 
when you add in the transfers and you add in the fact that it's so easy for the best players of these other programs to transfer to Oklahoma, it does make me feel like, what are you supposed to do? Now, we did see, as you wrote so well, like, they did have some close fits. It's not like every single game was a run rule. They did have some run rules against some of the best teams in the country. But I'm curious, being there for now multiple years, what the sense is. And, and you know, you, you reference and clearly are talking to people. Is there a sense of, like, this is bad for the sport? Or is there a sense, is there kind of a worry that, like, what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to knock these guys off their game? Or is it mostly respect and appreciation? I also imagine it's interesting because, admittedly, you know, the World Series is, what, 30 minutes away from campus in Norman? And so that also probably sways what the vibes are in Oklahoma City. But I'm curious kind of what you felt there beyond what you were able to write. Yeah, I, I think it's a mixed bag of both of those things you were saying, where I think there people are tired. One team winning six titles in 10 years. Like, yeah, if you're a neutral fan or if you're a fan of, you know, a team like Florida State, which was the one that lost in the championship series this year, or Stanford, which lost in the semifinals and had an incredible season. Um, yeah, you're going to be tired of seeing one team like this just roll through everyone again and again and again. Um, and looking like it was on its way to doing that before the change in the transfer portal rules you know, a couple of years ago now, and, and then just finding a way to suddenly reload even more. Yeah, people get kind of sick of that. Um, and I think reasonably so. I think if you hate them for being able to dominate like this, like it, it, it's justified. It's obviously you see that kind of throughout college sports and the way the landscape works now. It's obviously not just softball, but when a team already feels like it's super advantaged with the way it's built its program and been able to establish this kind of dominance, and then you just see it seemingly getting better with no end in sight. Like, yeah, that kind of sucks. But I think the the flip side of that is that villains are good for sports, I think. Totally. And I feel like, yeah, like especially in women's sports, women's college sports, there's this pernicious idea that a, a dynasty can be really bad. Like you've heard this with UConn women's basketball a lot, uh, you know, before this more recent wave of parody in the game of just like, what does this mean for the game? Is this just a sign that like the, the talent pool isn't as deep? You know, we need them to stop winning so much. And I've always kind of disliked that idea. Like, I think when you have a team that's setting the standard like this and, you know, showing what it's like to be this good in this many different facets of the game. And like you were saying, able to win in so many different ways, which I think is interesting and impressive. Whereas last year's Oklahoma team just hit a lot of home runs. This year's team does a lot of different things really well. Um, I think that's good when you have one team raising the standard like that. Like, yes, I totally understand as a fan being sick of it. If you root for a different program, not liking it. But I think this is good to a have an established villain. Like people love a heel. People love someone to hate. And it just raises the bar for everyone, I think. So I don't think it's bad for the sport. I get it being annoying, but I think in the long run, it can be a good thing. I totally, totally agree. And, you know, Oklahoma, if, listen, I, as you know, the reason we're talking about this to start this baseball podcast, I love softball and I don't have a team, right? So I don't care who really wins. I just want to watch amazing players. And Oklahoma has amassed this ridiculous roster, sure, through the portal, but Jordy Ball is like, she is, and this was true last year too as a freshman, she is so captivating. And now we're adding in that she's like this, one of the fastest pinch runners in softball that I didn't even know. I don't even remember that being a thing last year, but we saw her, you know, rounding the bases a few times. Um, I think seeing some stats, how she scored more runs as a pinch runner than she allowed or some, some goofy stuff like that. But the reason why I do think it's a good thing to your point, 
I still think it brings more attention to the sport in general. It makes you want to be like, how good is this team? Like, I want to see what it looks like to be this dominant for this long. But also it creates these narratives where, yes, when Oklahoma always comes out on top, it feels a little exhausting to watch these amazing players like Montana Fouts, like Kat Sandercock, like Valerie Cagle, who may be my favorite player in softball, have to go to Norman in the Super Regional with Clemson and just have no chance because she played amazing and it doesn't matter when you're up against a team like this. At the same time, like someone is going to beat them. We saw Odyssey Alexander, right? Like that, those, it makes those moments so much more special. And the talent softball is so good now. And yes, it is generally condensed on some of these best teams. But I think it sets up just these these incredible storylines. And yeah, when the same team wins at the end all the time, yes. But there have been enough close games and still kind of rising the the level of play for everybody around them. I do think that it, it is still a good thing for the sport. But also, yeah, I can understand it being exhausting. And I don't remember or can say that I'm enough of an expert for the that run for UConn women's basketball to remember exactly how similar that was. And I know it's different sports and the way that like in those games, when they're blowing teams out, there's no, there's no run rule in basketball. So like when they're putting up 60 point victories, like you got to play the game out and it's kind of a little bit less, a little bit less entertaining, but I agree with you. I think that in general, it's a good thing. And I'm just fascinated to see what's next. We mentioned Jordy ball, you know, she's two for two, not two for two now with national championships. I mean, obviously we're going to pick them again next year and sure. Some of those transfers are going to move on and, some of these some of these players are not always going to be there, but I, I mean, here's the reality. Some of the best players in the country are probably going to transfer to Oklahoma this summer. Like that's what's going to happen as it did last year. And you can't really blame them, um, but it is going to make it more interesting to see if someone can eventually uh, uh, topple the Sooners. Um, and yeah, so I, I did want to acknowledge that. I mean, it, it's amazing. And I guess my last question before we move on to some 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 baseball on this on this baseball podcast any singular moments from your week in Oklahoma City that stand out to you, uh, singular plays or things that will kind of stick with you? Yeah, I think my pick has got to be in this the decisive championship series game. We had third inning, two runners on for Florida State, which it's worth noting. Like this final game, Oklahoma won 3-1. It, it was a close game. It was not a blowout by any means. You had some incredible pitchers in a duel like Yes, yeah. they obviously came out on top, but yeah. it was a good game. It was not one of those huge blowouts. Oh, Florida um, State is like these other teams are so good. That's that's the other thing. Like when you watch these other games and you watch Tennessee and you watch Stanford and obviously Alabama over these past years, like these teams are incredible. And that's what makes Oklahoma so impressive. So sorry, go on. I know what play we're going towards and I'm excited to to relive it. Yes. No, just had to set the stage a little there, but it looked like Florida State was going to take a 3-0 early lead ball hit deep deep to center and Oklahoma center fielder Jada Coleman like loves to talk about how much she loves robbing home runs and just makes this incredible leaping catch right at the wall and then what's most impressive to me is she she makes the catch and she comes down and immediately fires to second base to hold the runner um like just one fluid motion i think the the throw was as impressive as the catch and um yeah it was a lot of great plays this weekend um we saw you know florida state's shortstop jose muffley is an incredible defensive player their left fielder kaylee mudge had a home run robbing catch of her own uh but jada coleman with the the catch to keep oklahoma in it early and make sure they didn't fall behind was insane yeah i i totally agree 
And Coleman, you know, she is, I mean, she's been amazing since she got there. And of course, because it's just been the Jocelyn Allo story, it's been harder to get the spotlight on some of these other guys relatively, the other players relatively. But T.R. Jennings and Kinsey Hansen, who's just so, so remarkable. And she had some, some big moments. I'll just say that the, the one other moment or player I have to mention is, is Nigel Kennedy, the uh, freshman yes. pitcher for Stanford, who, again, when you have freshmen to show up like this and can be that good, that, that immediately. And it's, it's, again, this goes back to is this good or bad thing? It's just like, how can this girl possibly pitch any better? And still lose, right? That is that is what is so demoralizing and deflating about playing Oklahoma. But I I'm so excited to you know watch her now for the for the next three years or so. So uh, she she definitely stood out uh, just in terms of mound presence and everything. Yeah, um, Nigel Kennedy's rise ball, which you know, speaking of ways, softball is different from baseball. The fact that you have that pitch that exists, um, mm-hmm. but Nigel Kennedy's version of it is just so so good. I think it's probably my favorite individual mm-hmm. pitch in the sport right now. Um, yeah, there's just so much incredible talent, not just on Oklahoma. The event is so fun. You you really have to come out next year. It's like the best environment. It's I need to really cool. Yeah, I need to yeah. just like commit in like January. Like this is what I am doing in June. Sorry to everybody <laughs> else. Like this is what is happening. So hopefully I will make that happen soon. One ready for this ridiculous transition. This is just going to be totally overwrought and whatever. One other moment from the uh, series that I will always remember is Carlin Pickens, another freshman throwing a softball 76 miles an hour on live television uh <laughs> and this against Oklahoma right i mean this was yeah. this was against Oklahoma the freshman of tennessee and i had never seen one that hard on watching having watched the women's college world series for the last 10 years my understanding is that the the supposed official record is monica abbott in a pro game in 2012 77 miles an hour and um, that was long after her college career but Throwing a softball that hard, a lot of the reactions to this. You see where I'm going with this, Emma? This is <laughs> this is this is very this is almost cruel, but I'm going to do it anyway. A lot of the reactions says, "Okay, first of all, oh my God, how could anybody hit that?" Right, and second of all, people say, "How how is she doing? Doesn't that hurt? Doesn't it hurt to throw a ball that hard?" And when you watch softball deliveries, you say, "It looks so because it's in some ways more complicated than a baseball delivery. It feels like it's even worse on your arm, or it looks like, oh my God, wouldn't that hurt?" But the reality is, is that these girls can throw and throw and throw and throw and throw and throw. And that is the, one of my favorite parts about softball because you know that the best pitcher who threw today is probably going to be available tomorrow. And you know that the best pitchers on the, all these teams, they will be there this year and next year and the year after that and the year after that. And that is a great thing about this sport. That is not true in the sport of baseball, Emma. And earlier this week, we got some news that when he's on the best pitcher on the planet, Jacob DeGrom will be having his second Tommy John surgery. Did not get to talk about this on Wednesday, of course, during our A-pod, but this is gigantic news, not just for Jacob DeGrom himself, not just because he is, of course, one of the more, uh, you know, kind of iconic pitchers of his generation, but for a Rangers team. I want to talk about this, how it relates to the Rangers, but we'll start with DeGrom because this is the news that, unfortunately, we've all been fearing for, I don't know, however many years now that, you know, DeGrom has been bouncing on and off the I.L., uh, but when you saw this, what were what were you thinking? Besides, like, man, here here we are. Yeah, it it feels weird to say it was anticlimactic, but like you said, it's. I don't think there's any point in the last seven years this would have really surprised me as much as it bums me out. Um, you know, it just has felt inevitable for for this long, which 
sucks. I mean, obviously he's one of, I think the single most like mesmerizing pitcher to watch when he's on. Um, but of course, you know, that's come with all of the the questions and IL stints and all of that for, for so long. And so, yeah, it really sucks. A huge bummer. And yet at the same time, looking at what the Rangers have done this year, mostly without him is uh, pretty insane. Certainly not something I expected. And, it, you know, they've been able to get this very comfortable lead in the AL West without him. And I, I don't think, you know, they'd obviously prefer to have him all things considered, but I, I don't think this is going to really be a meaningful step back with what they've been able to do so far. Yeah, I agree with that. And also, I think, I mean, he gave him six pretty damn good starts, which might end up being the difference in the division. Yeah. You know, obviously it's not worth, however, the $38 million that they're paying him, but it's still, it is still, a, he did contribute at least somewhat. But yeah, as far as him in, in general, I mean, it's just, it's not like the Rangers are going to be shocked either. You know, I mean, there's always calculated risks with all of these free agent signings and so many different versions of it. And health is one of them. And every medical is going to be cleared differently. That's fine. It doesn't make anyone right or wrong. It's a risk that they decided to take and it didn't work, you know, at least in the, in the, in the short term. And we'll see if he'll be able to come back and have more of a, of a late career renaissance. I will say, I mean, he, he was clearly really distraught over this and you can imagine like living this experience. Uh, Of course you say, Oh, I don't feel bad for him. He's making all this money and he's going to be fine. Of course. But it's not like he doesn't know that he's had to go off. Like it's, it's living that too. When he knows how good he is, he knows he can be the best in the world has to be exhausting, right? It has to be exhausting. Of course he wants to go out there and do his thing. That's what he does. He's Jacob DeGrom. He pitches. And so, uh, that's, that's really, that was hard. And you could tell it, 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 you know, really, uh, really was, was emotionally uh, challenging for him. And, but as you said, like the Rangers have put themselves in a situation mostly because their offense is unbelievable. And I think that when you came into the season, I think you said, okay, that offense could be pretty freaking good. You know, if some of those younger guys can click and some of those maybe guys that we didn't know as much about, like Jonah Heim and really take these big steps forward. But now they're in a spot with the pitching where I agree that the offense is probably good enough no matter what. And, you know, Ivaldi, another two-time Tommy John guy, and, you know, Heaney and, you know, Dunning has really stepped up in, in DeGrom's absence. I look at it and I say, I think the team's really good. Could they win the division? Absolutely. But they are one more injury to a fairly still injury-prone staff where I think that the depth, for especially when you consider how shaky the bullpen has also been, that's where it's going to get a little dicey. Now, they're going to be entertaining to watch the whole season long, no matter what, because they score so many runs. And sometimes, I mean, I've said this about good teams in the past, sometimes a bad bullpen makes for great TV, like, you know, <laughs> even for a good team. And so, I'm, I've, you know, I've enjoyed watching them for sure. But uh, but yeah, they, they are, even though DeGrom was already out, I do think this kind of highlights like how important it is for all these other guys who have also had injury issues to stay on the field because that depth isn't really there, in my opinion. Yeah, I think if they don't make some pretty meaningful depth acquisitions at the deadline, like I don't think they need a star, but I do think you need to round out the depth there. And I think if they don't, that'll be a, a mistake. But um, I mean, looking at the way this team has approached roster construction the last two years, they you know are clearly willing to go for it in ways that have surprised me that I didn't think we'd see them arriving at this level quite this soon. But I'm glad that we have. It's fun to watch, and you know, I. I think that makes sense. Like if you have a group that the core has shown they can be this good, just bolster it a little at the deadline. Like that's going to be really fun to watch down the stretch. Like you were saying. I'm curious. We see how aggressive they've been in spending the money in free agency. And they're this weird example of like, 
well, it's working, but also they just got six starts of Jacob deGrom for 40 million or whatever, and now he's out. Like it's it's kind of both things are happening at the same time. I'm curious what the aggression looks like on the trade standpoint, because their farm system is is kind of a kind of a controversial farm system for dorks like me because they show up very high on some of the farm system rankings because they have a lot of depth of like solid players. <laughs> like they've they've really helped in that way. But I'm curious who they would really try to cash in. Or is it a situation where let's go find a big contract for someone that we can just take someone off because we'll, we'll spend the money. That's clearly not the issue. And that's kind of how they they make their uh, their move at the deadline. So I agree with you. I think what they will be a, a fascinating team to watch. And Houston was sort of making them sweat for a little bit there, but then they've kind of fallen back, had a tough week this week. So they have a bit of a cushion. I don't know if that makes them more likely to be aggressive or less likely to be aggressive, but Texas certainly one of these stories of the season so far in the AL in the positive side, which is a good transition to the negative surprises in the National League, uh, headlined, of course, by the New York Mets, who last night lost their third consecutive game to the Atlanta Braves, despite leading by, I believe, at least three in all three games. Last night, I think they were up, was it nine to two or 10 to, it was, they had a huge lead last night and just slowly but surely, here come the Braves. We got Orlando Arcia doing crazy shit. We got, you know, Ozzy walking it off. It was it was textbook Braves uh, in Atlanta against the Mets. And the Mets are, <laughs> the Mets, like, okay, you talk about a team that just spent a lot of money and now here they are at 30 and 33 and closer to the Nationals than the Braves. Uh, what do you, what is your, your sense here? Like, first of all, how much is, does this surprise you? And we'll get to these other three National League teams that have underwhelmed, but where we're at with the Mets, like even knowing the the Metsness of it all, what has surprised you about this Mets collapse? I know you've been in Oklahoma City watching softball, not you know clued into every Brooks Raley outing, but in a broader scale, what has kind of surprised you or not surprised you about this Mets uh, slow start? I would like to be more surprised by this than I am. Um, I think, as you were saying, like yes, there's just the the Metsiness of it all, which has proven weirdly durable despite you know the ownership change the clear investment uh like <laughs> it is very uh, apparent like the team's core identity is not changing uh seemingly no matter what they do which i think is very funny but i also understand is <laughs> you know a bummer for them yeah uh, I, well i would also say like okay so what's going well for them this year pete alonso who's now maybe going to the il um i don't know if we have official word on that by the time we're recording this, but it seems like he's going to be out for at least a little while after getting hit on his wrist um, by a pitch. And, you know, he's got 22 homers this year and he's been, he's been like their only consistent guy. Nimmo has been good, you know, since they brought him back. But to me, when you say, okay, well, no matter what they do, the one thing was, well, Scherzer and Verland, like you have like the oldest rotation in the league. Yeah. And that's the part that has seemingly come back to bite them, even though they seem now Verlander was not healthy to start the year. And I would have to imagine that has something to do with his not so impressive start to the season, but him and Scherzer, Carrasco, obviously too, like this is, it's, this was the concern on top of what does the bullpen look like without Edwin Diaz. And so once we got to that point, I was like, I'm I'm really, to your point, not just because of the messiness of it all. I also kind of looked at the roster. I was like, well, there's versions of this that could go wrong. Yeah. It was one of those things where I think, you know, it wouldn't have shocked me to see both of them, healthy both of them dealing like obviously Scherzer and Verlander have both shown that they can make adjustments as they age you know be durable for for their age yada 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 but at the same time it also wouldn't surprise me to see exactly what 
we've seen, which is like when you have two guys who are close to 40, over 40, like uh, th this is the exact risk. And when that's the focal point of the rotation, like, yeah, this is not a surprise. Yeah. Also, 38-year-old David Robertson has been amazing. You know, I know he gives up the homer last night, but like he's been, if they didn't have him, I mean, this bullpen would really be in, in horrific shape. But I, I, okay, so like when Diaz goes down, I, and I still sort of believe this, like, can you pin this season on Diaz going down? No. Like, I don't think that's a reasonable, even when it happened, I was like, this is terrible. I feel terrible for Edwin and I feel terrible for Mets fans. It is very unfortunate. This should not derail a season to this degree. And I would say I feel I feel like I'm been slightly wrong about that just because it was like it was so automatic last year, right? It wasn't just that we're replacing those literal number of innings, but it did just give this sense of confidence that they had last year that is clearly not there this year at all. On top of the fact, even with David Robertson being really good, so but the, the, that bridge trying to end the game, right? The, the 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 phrase I always you know hear, I don't know where I first heard that, but like the roadmap to twenty seven outs has been a complete mess, <laughs> like for especially with the struggles of the starters. Yeah, I think it's one of those things where, like you were saying, from a statistical depth chart based perspective it shouldn't necessarily be like this um but from a vibes perspective totally cooked just yeah. completely yeah but also the offense is just not very good <laughs> that's also part of it like Marte just being totally non-productive whatsoever and Alvarez has been awesome and he's been incredible to watch for so many reasons. The fact that he's kind of seized that catching job, the fact that he has, you know, 11 home runs now in like 40 games as a 21 year old catcher is incredible. But Beatty has not really been impactful. And there's not, again, with the depth, there's just not many buttons for them to press. And I know Steve Cohen has talked about wanting to build a sustainable, you know, Dodgers-like depth farm system and just full organization. You can't do that in one offseason. You can't just pay for that. And so we knew that was going to take time, and I think they hoped that paying for all these famous players would be enough to kind of carry them over this next little stretch. Now it puts them in a situation, what do you, I mean, they're not going to be sellers. I don't see that really happening, but it does put a lot of pressure on a lot of people involved to make some some tough decisions moving forward which honestly might not even be decisions. It might just be, we got to ride it out and hope these really famous uh, high-paid players start playing better. <laughs> I guess I think that's kind of what they have to do. They don't really have much of a choice. Yeah, and I mean, it, with the, the question of the deadline, it is worth saying there are only three games back in the wild card right now, which they've, yeah. they've had a lot of help from uh, the general disarray among nationally presumed contenders. Um, but yeah, it's certainly not impossible. I mean, with the expanded system, like mm -hmm. there, there's space three games out of the last wild card berth is it, it's June. There's a lot of time. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it is going to make it interesting because I don't think there is like a clear, straightforward path to patching these holes. And it, it's going to take some of these guys making adjustments and, you know, being able to perform better in a way that has not looked obvious at all so far. Nope. Nope. Uh, and one of those teams they are, of course, chasing weirdly here in the second week of June is Pittsburgh, who they are playing this weekend. <laughs> so we will see them go to Pittsburgh and that that could make things a lot better and a lot worse, depending on how that goes uh, for those two teams. But before we take a break, I did want to zoom out a little bit more with some of those other teams you just mentioned, those presumed NL contenders. 
And I know the Phillies, you know, I'm wearing my Reese Hoskins jersey. Since he showed up in the dugout, they can't lose. So we'd love to see that. Uh, congrats on the team morale, Reese. Very exciting. Um, but, you know, the Phillies, you know, they've won five in a row here, but they still qualify as a, as a disappointment through this season. And to they're, you know, half game ahead of the Mets at this stage, but still not where they wanted to be coming off last season. And then San Diego and St. Louis, who have been, you know, the, the pinnacle of like how talk about sky high expectations. Certainly San Diego, even more buzz, but St. Louis, who you could just pencil in for 90 wins every year, is nowhere near that. I think St. Louis seems like the team most likely headed for possibly selling. And I know they sit, you know, seven games back with almost the same record as the Nationals and the Cubs have been struggling too. But I'm curious of those other three teams, which has has surprised you the most or or have been like, yep, nope, saw that coming. These This really good team with all these good players. Yeah, they were totally going to suck like this. The Cardinals are definitely the one that has surprised me the most. Like, don't get me wrong, the, the Padres also with the amount of money they've spent to the seemingly safe bets you could make on these guys performing for the most part. That's been really weird, but the the Cardinals, the fact that the way they have been bad is so completely the opposite of how this organization usually runs has just been totally bizarre to me in a way that's been really fun to watch. And like, a, I don't know if I want to say like shot in Florida, like I don't sure. want to see them fail, but it's just so strange with, like you were saying, you can pencil them in for like 90 every year. They, the Cardinal way, like all the little things they seemingly always do right and now all of a sudden it's not just that they're bad it's that we have all this weird organizational drama with Jordan Walker with Contreras things that are it's like the, the least Cardinalsy things imaginable like leaking out in front of everyone being handled poorly you know these basic questions about who is being called to do what when like it it, it wouldn't have been stunning for me just for them to have underperformed like that happens but for them to be so messy and have mm-hmm. so much drama and weird storylines like that by far takes the cake for me, you know, even more so than these other teams underperforming. I, yeah, I totally agree. And I, you know, I, I got to spend some time around them earlier this season when they came through Cincy and it was like, <laughs> I felt both so much better and so much worse. Cause at that point it was Walker was still down and that's when like Matt's was clearly on the verge of losing his job, which they have now officially made that decision. They've gone with Libertor, which was a button they could press and we'll see how that works out. I know uh, Libertor hasn't looked as good recently, but they have to try something there. Walker's back. So that's good. But to your point, right? A lot of messy stuff and they still have this weird, all kinds of strange defensive log jams and underperformance from some young players we really believed in like Brendan Donovan and you know Dylan Carlson, like all these things that we just assume would work out. And it just hasn't. It just really, really hasn't. And it's just more embarrassing for them because they're in an NL Central that doesn't, is not, you know, pushing them down. It's not a situation like say the Blue Jays or even the Red Sox where it's like, we are doing a lot right, but you have to do more than that to compete in your division. It's the opposite in the Central, both Centrals. Um, like you is really don't have to do that much right to kind of get there. And, you know, then there they go. You'll get their ass kicked by Pittsburgh last week and just just sloppy all around. And I, I don't know. I still look at that roster and think that they could get to 500 and, and stick around in this bad division. But I, I agree with you. I think that they, with, with the contracts that they have, a lot of them are some of those pitchers. Like, I think they're more likely to go in the other direction if we get to that point you know a month from now but and then san diego like i don't freaking know with them like i they they're they're weird because they 
one game at a time sometimes do look like the Padres. Like, holy shit, look at all this. Oh, we got Musgrove looks good, and here's Soto, and Tatis is kind of starting to feel it. And then they just look like the worst team in the league. They literally look like they've never hit ever before. And it's it's been they're they're basically alternating those games. And that is is very probably exhausting for the fan base, as I've seen uh, on Twitter.com. But I, I'm with you. Like I, I still feel like I mean, I know they're in a tougher task with how good Arizona and, and the Dodgers have been generally. But I guess my question would be a good way to wrap up this conversation. As we sit here now, the wildcard teams are the Dodgers, the Marlins, and the Pirates. If you had to pick your three wildcard teams now, I know this is tough to spring it on you, but who do you think those those end up being? I feel really good about it being probably Dodgers or D-backs at this point. Like I think Arizona is another team that deserves more love, probably will be a little bit more aggressive at the deadline as well. So if we assume it's one of those teams, of those other two spots, who do we, who do we think is going to sneak in there? Of course, the Giants are the other team I haven't even mentioned. They are currently a half game back of Pittsburgh, but what would you what would you say? I have really liked watching the Pirates this year. I spent a, a weekend there in the end of April where it was just kind of starting to be late enough where it was like, huh, like maybe this is actually, you know, legit. Um, yeah, I didn't expect this at all at the start of the season, but I think, you know, I, I really like the way this pitching staff has come together. I think especially like looking at getting some injured players back throughout the year. I, I like the Pirates here. Um, and I, I think they could even, you know, overtake the the Brewers. I wouldn't be shocked if they win the division. Um, but certainly one of those two it, it, mm-hmm. coming out of the Central, I think. Um, God, the Marlins. I mean, yes. they are now 35 <laughs> and 28. They're like a game back of the Dodgers. They've won six in a row. I, If you've listened to me or thought, like, I'm always rooting for the Marlins. I think as goofy as they are in so many senses, as so many ter- – again, they they signed Gene Segura. He's the worst hitter in baseball. Sandy's ERA is over five. Like, there's so much not happening for them, and it doesn't matter. I mean, it's like they're, they're finding with Skip Schumacher is, at this point, so far and away the manager of the year, you know, winner. That's not the award I care the least about, but God bless him. I mean, he's clearly doing something right. I'm sure the Cardinals miss him having him on the bench. Yeah, I, uh, this has been so much fun to watch. And especially because I thought, you know, heading into the year, I could see a path to a wild card that I thought would be like pitching really holds up and drives them forward. And then, you know, the offense gets kind of good enough to make it work. And instead it's really been more the opposite. Um, but it's just been so fun. And I, I, I think they can take that wild card spot. And I, I really hope they do because like you said, like, that's great. I want to see a team whose offseason approach was let's get as many second basemen as possible and then just force them into weird spots. I want to see that in the playoffs. Oh, a rise is amazing. Yeah. I kind of feel like I, man, am I really a believer in the Marlins? It's just going to end up being the Giants and we're all just going to look like idiots. That's, that's probably yeah. where I, <laughs> I land on that. Um, but it's, it's, it's very, very difficult to pick. So I won't, I won't hold you to it too much, uh, but we will see how that plays out. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we return, we are going to do the good, the bad, and the ugla, and then we will say goodbye. What's up? This is Ashley Nicole Moss, first lady of I Am Athlete, a Sirius XM podcast. All this week, join me and Brandon. Brandon Marshall, a.k.a. The Beast. As we break down the NBA Finals every day with Paper Route in the I Am Athlete podcast feed. We're giving you our takes. Plus, we've got guests like former All-Star Andre Drummond breaking it down with us. 
Download Paper Route as part of the I Am Athlete podcast feed right now on Pandora, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome back to Baseball Barbacast. I'm Jordan Schusterman, joined by Sports Illustrated's Emma Bacheleri, who is now going to partake in her very first good, bad, ugla. The good, the bad, the ugla. Something good, something bad. Something Dan Ugla over the past week. Doesn't actually have to do with Dan Ugla, but uh, just something in the world of baseball that is you're just like, wow, that is very strange. I'm glad that that is now in my life because of this sport that we love. We begin with the good. Something good from this past week. Uh, why don't you start us off? My favorite thing is something I think you can talk quite a bit about because I believe you were there, but I enjoyed everything we saw about the L.A. De La Cruz experience. Um, but I especially enjoyed the the kid who caught that first home run ball, who negotiated for a bunch of things to give the ball over with autographs and a visit, but especially with this giant squad picture of all of his friends, which was like a, a lot of friends to be at a ball game with. There's like, a, I think, 10 of them. Um, just all holding their autographed baseballs with De La Cruz in the Reds media room, it looks like Mm -hmm. just, um, great negotiating skills by this kid. I think he really got everything out of that home run ball he possibly could have. And it just looked like a lot of fun. Yeah. And also, you know, (laughs) so much of the, oh, you catch a milestone home run ball or someone's first and the, like, we've seen this story before. But it's, you know, think about where this kid was sitting, right? He's sitting in basically the last row of the right field seats. And here comes the ball, you know, careening towards him at 114 miles an hour or whatever, 458 feet, one of the longest homers just immediately in ballpark history. Just hilarious stuff all around from Ellie De La Cruz. And yeah, you know, I was, I was there for those first two games. I saw him launch that homer. And uh, yeah, you know, before the day, the, the day before, you know, watching him take BP before his debut and... I was like, okay, like we are going to see him at some point in his Reds career. He will hit it over those bleachers or whatever bleachers. He will hit it out. He will hit it to, you know, out of the state to Kentucky. Like that is going to happen. And I believe that's happened twice in documented Reds history. Juan Francisco, most iconically, one of my favorite random home runs ever. And then Adam Dunn, who I think might have done it multiple times, actually. Uh, But it's just, it's like, oh, I'll do that at some point. Next day, oh, I'll just do it in my first. <laughs> I'll just do it in my first one. And by the way, it probably would have been out if Noah Syndergaard could throw harder than ninety-one miles an hour. <laughs> so, so he's going to have to have a little bit more power supplied by the pitcher. I know Ellie's doing a lot of the heavy lifting with his bat speed and his, you know, his exit velos. But, but to your point, I mean, yeah, it was it was great. And the whole like holding the ball hostage, like I can't relate to that as a media member. Like I just don't. I don't find the baseball, like, I. this is stupid. I get that, like, you catch this lottery ticket and presumably you could hold it hostage for a lot of money or something, and I know we've seen examples of that. just seems weird to me. Like, to me, especially if I'm actually a Reds fan and I'm hanging out, like, hell yeah, I want a picture with Ellie De La Cruz. Like, that's, think about how many Instagram likes I'm going to get, and that's worth <laughs> more to me now if I'm a college kid than, you know, however much money I'm going to, you know, try and make from holding it hostage and having everybody hate me and then selling it on eBay. Like that all seems like not that much fun, (laughs) even for the financial gain. Yeah. I also, I'm just such a people pleaser that I'd be like, Oh my gosh, I'm sorry. Like I didn't mean to catch it. Here you go. Like, sorry for inconveniencing you. (laughs) Like I can't relate to the, like, 
I, you know, best moment of this guy's career so far. Like, no, it's, it's my moment now. Like I caught it. Also, by the way, I think here's a rule for this moving forward. It should only matter if you actually literally caught it. If you actually caught it, you know, or made a nice catch and you worked for it, you did that. Not, not the ball bounced to you or you, you know, elbowed enough people out of the way. And I think in this case, you know, this kid wasn't expecting the ball to be landing. I think he kind of like swatted it and then ran ran down the aisle and, and got it. I do think if you actually catch it, maybe I can give you a little bit more street cred to be like, I actually did something here as opposed to the ball landed in my lap. But to your point, I'm with you. I can't relate to being like, oh yeah, this is mine now. I know that this is how obviously someone who hits his first homer wants to have the ball. No, sorry, actually, because I happen to be sitting in this seat and now it's mine. <laughs> That's weird. Yeah. I don't know. I can't relate to that at all. That was, uh, I did something with the uh, Tigers lead authenticator during mm-hmm. Mickey's the 500th home run chase. Or sorry. Yeah. 500, mm-hmm. 600, mm-hmm. 500. Yeah, 500, 500. Um, yep. So many, they all blend together. <laughs> uh, they, he hit, hit that on a road trip. I think it ended yeah, up Toronto. being in Toronto. Yep. And they had booked ahead for every stage of that road trip not knowing when he was going to hit it a separate dedicated suite that they were going to have empty that they would then bring whoever caught it to to start the negotiation and i just remember thinking like if they take me to an empty suite i would be melting down i was like don't take me here just just (laughs) take it from me like do not bring me to a second location um yeah i would not do well in that situation because that stand strong there's so many versions of right? obviously this was a big thing with judge last year that that feels a little bit more i mean respect to Ellie de la cruz right it's it's a first career homer is different than a literal you know home run record ball i know that these are different values or whatever but i agree with you yeah that, that they have like security like ushering people around it's like i the, my other takeaway is just like it's not that serious let's relax let's yeah. just let's all be let's all be let's all be reasonable people here okay <laughs> like it's cool home runs are hit you have the ball okay let's just let's do something no but i to your point what was good about this he did exactly what what he should have which is get a cool picture with one of the coolest people in baseball my good this week is well the two best teams in the American League are playing this weekend. That's cool in and of itself the Rangers and Rays taking on uh, each other three game set and Tropicana Field but the low bros, Nathaniel and Josh, will be playing against each other for the very first time. I've uh, been lucky enough to get to know both of these guys over the last few years. Just a hilarious uh, brotherly combo uh, because what I love about them is that Josh was the guy always. And it's common that the younger guy is maybe more you know, naturally talented and it all comes easier to him because he's following in his footsteps. But it's a little bit different because Nathaniel was like not a prospect. Uh, coming out of high school at all. And so it, it was it's just very funny how their paths have kind of converged because then last year, Nathaniel's killing it. He's a silver slugger and Josh like can't get on the field with Tampa. And it's like, oh no, is Josh ever going to get his time to shine? Well, we see what's happened this year. He's one of the many Rays hitters that's just been amazing. And now they're going to get to play each other. Um, I know they're going to have a lot of, of friends and family there. So very cool. I'm sure you'll get, I mean, you'll, you'll see it tonight. Josh will get on first base and they'll be messing with each other. It'll be everything. It is both cliche and so wonderful. And uh, I can't wait to see uh, our lovely friend Sarah Lang's retweeted 7,000 times as she should. Because it is, is a, it is because baseball is indeed the best. Uh, the the lowdown showdown uh, tonight against uh, the Rays and Rangers. Very excited for that. All right, let's get to the bad. Oh, I mean, listen, we're, we're we're trying to be positive here. This is a positive show. 
you know we love baseball, but sometimes people are bad at baseball. And Emma, I know uh, there's one pitcher in particular that has been making us particularly sad for being so bad. Yes, um, this one really has depressed me, but Corey Kluber, uh, who is someone I would have liked to think could have made adjustments to keep thriving as he, you know, got over 35 and, and kept going, uh, has not been the case this year for the Red Sox at all. Was moved to the bullpen and stuff is not playing up in the bullpen uh, at all. It, last night in just over three innings, they really just let him wear it. Just kept sending him back out. 11 hits, seven runs. Now his ERA is over seven, making me very sad. Not what I want to see from him, but uh, sorry, Corey Kluber, you are my bad this yeah. week. Yeah, and you know, I was also cautiously optimistic. He had such a weird year last year where the numbers were not amazing, but what he basically decided was, I am done walking people. He's like, I know I don't throw anymore, but the very least I can do is throw a lot of strikes. And last year with the Rays, it worked enough. It I know his season ended by giving up that home run to Oscar Gonzalez in an extra innings game where neither team could score. But during the regular season, like he made his 31 starts, 4-3-4 ERA. He was a serviceable guy. He could throw it over. He could, you know, give you some innings. And then this year, it's just his not, it's now too many strikes. And not now, now it's obvious he's regressed. And now that the command is kind of faltering, the stuff isn't back. It sucks. And, you know, it's that this is the whatever the nature of pitching of sometimes guys can can keep it going and then it can go very quickly, I guess is the lesson with Corey Kluber. It can go very quickly. Yeah. It's also one of those things where uh, I know this is false, but I tend to believe when guys are able to function like that with the Rays that, like, ah, like the Rays have permanently fixed you as a pitcher, which uh, is not how it works. And yet it's really easy to buy into it. Like anytime someone signs a free agent off the Rays, makes an acquisition via trade, it's like, ah, yes, well, the Rays have solved the puzzle. And now in perpetuity, it's going to be fine, uh, which famously not how pitching works. Yes, not definitely not. But uh, I do, I do agree. It is, it is one of those, I don't know how long it's going to take for us to kind of shake that. Uh, but you know, in some, in some cases that is actually exactly what happens. You leave Tampa, uh, and things go south, but that's okay. Uh, here's what else is bad. An entire division. Emma, the AL central has five teams currently under 500 and, uh, that's hilarious first and foremost. And if it feels, if this feels familiar, that's because it is. (laughs) <laughs> because we do this every year. Most notably, 2018, the AL Central had the worst combined winning percentage in this divisional era. And at that point, that was a that was a a, a year where three teams finished with 98 losses. This is when Cleveland like totally ran away with it. But for reference point, I know we're only through, you know, 60 games here, but that division had a combined winning percentage of like 436 uh, that year. This is when Cleveland wins the division with 91 wins. Minnesota finishes in second with six, with 78 wins. And then Tigers, White Sox, Royals, 64, 62, 64, or 58, sorry. Uh, that season, combined winning percentage, 436. This year, combined winning percentage, 424. Ooh. So not even close. Do I expect them to finish with the worst combined winning percentage of all time? I mean, maybe, especially if the White Sox sell and the Tigers, who were playing shockingly okay, um, are now back to, they've lost a bunch in a row. So that's been more like what I've, I've expected. And the Royals, we're going to get to them for my Ugla. 
you'll see in a second, just horrific. So what do you think? Do you think they finish? Do you think this will be the worst uh, division we ever see? I think it will be. And I feel like the biggest thing here, or maybe not the biggest, but a big thing here is with the balanced schedule. This is the first year we have reconfigured it that way. You know, you used to have the division playing itself more. So you would have to have the ability for Cleveland or Minnesota to be able to beat up on Kansas City and Detroit and juice their own win totals like that. And now that you don't have that, like they can't rely on each other to prop themselves up. I think I, I would not be surprised if they are clearly the worst we've ever seen. And I hope what we get is going from the top of the AL East to the bottom of the AL Central with the Twins or Cleveland, whoever ends up winning, being below the last place team in the AL East, which has been the case for most of this year. Yeah. I hope we get that nice little uh, aesthetic vibe yes. of all of the ten, being ten worse teams than. in order. Yes. Yeah, it was yes. you know it was a novelty a month ago, and now it's just you know another day. I mean, we're yep. just very used to it. And, you know, we'll see if if Boston ends up kind of falling off. I mean, that's really the team you would most expect to kind of maybe fall more below 500 or, or more in, in kind of a danger zone there. But, like, and I think Minnesota is a better team than Boston, just to be clear. And maybe yeah. Cleveland, although I still <laughs> their offense. I mean, all of these, all of these offenses in this division are just atrocious. So, anyway, I agree with you. I think there's a great chance that they can break their own record here. With the with the worst uh, with the worst combined winning percentage uh, division history, congratulations to them. More, do you think I'm done with the L Central? Just just wait for a <laughs> second. But you're going to do uh, your Ugla first. So, what is your Ugla this week? Yes, uh, my Ugla is within the realm of Aaron Judge's toe injury. I learned something new, which is that the official term for your big toe, which is what Aaron Judge has sprained, that is you know sidelined him, is your great toe. The official MLB release for this described it as a right great toe sprain, uh, which it just feels a little formal. You know, I'm not saying it's bad, but it, there's nothing wrong with big toe. It's perfectly descriptive. I don't think we need to assign value to the toe. You know, just call it the big toe. It's fine. I, I agree. I don't think we need that. Yeah, what the grand toe, right? There's other... <laughs> So my first takeaway is exactly what you said, right? Why are we making stuff up? No one has ever heard of these terms. On the other hand, um, leave it to MLB for, you know, pumping up Aaron Judge even more than they already do. I mean, right? You know, like we got to give this guy <laughs> even more credit because his big toe is actually great, even though it's not because it's sprained and that's why he's on the IL. So yeah, I'm, I, I'm totally with you. I've never seen this before. I was curious, do you have two great toes? Do you have... Is your other big, you know, what I, you know what I'm saying? Like, is it just on one of them? Um, is your big toe? But I mean, I guess also, like, again, we all, we have two two big toes. I probably too much toe well, chat, but I, I I am interested. I am kind of I and, and also, are there names for the other toes that we don't know about that we need to now learn? That's a great question. We now we need to see someone sprain. I guess pinky toe. I'm assuming is is medically codified. Uh, but the middle toes, I don't know. What I have no idea what those could be. We have some yeah. great production uh, from producer Chris here, who just dropped in the chat. I don't know if this is from Wikipedia. I don't like this. But, I do not like this. Oh, yeah, Emma does not like this. Should I not read this? Is this is no, this no, no. I, bring this to the people, but this is bad. Okay, uh, Chris, you're gonna have to help me out and tell me where your source is here. But I'm just gonna read it. Uh, the <laughs> the first toe, also known as the hallux. That would be great. If they had, if MLB had tweeted a 
he hit the eye out with a, a right hallux sprain. People would be freaking out. They'd be like, oh my God, what is wrong with Aaron Judge? Like, <laughs> is he going to be out for the year? Like, this is terrible. All right. The first toe known as the hallux or big toe, great toe, thumb toe. Hate that. Not, no, no thank you. No, the innermost, no. <laughs> the, the innermost toe. Uh, the second toe, the index toe or pointer toe. That's just great. Because again, See, are, are we pointing with point. our feet? Right. <laughs> You can't just graft the terms for your fingers onto your toes. I do not like that. The pointer toe is not pointing. It, it, like You can't really even move that toe directionally. You can just wiggle it. Right, right. And then it's oh. the third toe, middle toe. That's fine. Fourth toe, four toe. I don't know what that means. And then the fifth toe names, we got baby toe. That's, I think, yeah, baby toe, little toe, small toe, pinky toe. So what, of those four, what, where are we going with? I think I'd say pinky t- see in that one i'm more okay with kind of uh, using the the finger terminology yeah i'm okay to call it the baby toe um mm. i mean it is yeah i i like personally i'll say pinky toe but i yeah. wouldn't be offended if someone called it the baby toe <laughs> so you're more in on baby toe than great toe it seems like yes yeah i'm with you on that i'm with you on that because it, it it i think it also like in my head it like it translates faster it makes sense it makes sense to me more than great toe. Great toe is so goofy. I hate yes. that. Um, Halix, we need to really, I want some Yankees beat writer to be like, Aaron, how's the Halix? <laughs> see, uh, see if he figures that out. Also, just on this topic in general, regardless of what the toes are called, Yankees injuries, not just the fact that they have a lot of them and it's been a big part of the seasons recently, the degree to which the Yankee injury updates are just the biggest story 20 fold over every other organization and because it's more media but it's just it's so funny and i know sometimes aaron boone gets exhausted by being asked all these extremely specific questions trying to narrow down his timeline whatever and i don't blame boone but it is just really funny so anyway yeah Uh, that is that is wonderfully ugla thank you yes (laughs) um all right my ugla uh wrap the show with let's go back to the al central and uh and get sad here um, Emma, last year, do you, are, are you, sorry, were you familiar with the historic efforts, that's a, probably the wrong way to say it, of one Paolo Espino with the Washington Nationals? You, 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 are you familiar with Paolo Espino and the Washington Nationals? I am, but I, he's not someone I associate mm. with historic efforts. Okay. So, right. so, and you can maybe correct me here about the, the using the word efforts, cause that's maybe a little disrespectful or, or misleading last year, uh, especially in the second half, the Washington, you know, the Washington nationals were horrible, right? Really, really one of the worst teams in baseball. And when you're one of the worst teams in baseball, that means you are losing a lot of games. Right. And so by, you know, you know, by extension, your pitchers are not winning. Your pitchers are not winning games, quite literally winning games. They are not accruing pitcher wins. And I know that this has been a story coming into this season or or for the early part of the season with Oakland in particular, where none of their starters were getting pitching wins. But last year, Paolo Espino, who kind of worked in a kind of a swingman role, he appeared in 42 games, but he made 19 starts, made a run at the all-time record for most innings pitched in a season without a win. He finished the year with 113 innings without a win, which ended up being fourth all time uh, going back to, you know, the 19th century for the most innings ever without a win. Do you, will you, first of all, do you have something to say about this before I continue? (laughs) 
Yes, I cannot believe a Nationals player did that last year that wasn't Patrick Corbin. <laughs> well, Corbin was <laughs> racking up the losses, but he was he did get some wins here and there just because he went deep into enough games. But still a good point. Still a good point. Corbin, I don't know how many wins he had. I know he led the league. I know he's led the league in losses. But I, I'm focusing more on not winning. Not once, because pitchers care about this. Even if us as fans say, oh, this doesn't matter, they still do. Most of them still do care about having the W next to their name at the end of the night. Which brings me to Jordan Lyles, Emma. Jordan Lyles has begun his season 0-10. Through 13 starts, he has pitched over 70 innings. He is leading the league in earned runs allowed, home runs allowed for the hapless Royals, who are clearly the second worst team in baseball. And this start to the year for Jordan Lyles has him on tremendous pace to surpass Espino, if not someone else. Do I think this will actually happen? Probably not, because Jordan Lyles is is not this bad. Jordan Lyles, my hero, by the way, for his heroic efforts against against the Yankees last year to enable the Cal Raleigh walk-off being what it was that same day. So thank you, Jordan Lyles, forever. Thank you for your service. But when the Royals bring him in to munch innings, they probably also thought he could at least, you know, keep him in some ball games. And while it's mostly been because the Royals' offense sucks, he has been winless through 13, 13 starts. And this will be something I am watching. I don't know when his next start is, but Jordan Lyles' win watch is officially in play. Can Jordan Lyles get a dub? 0 and 10 is a tough start to the year. That is a bummer. And yeah. Yeah, with the Royals' offense, I think it says more about them than about him. Yes, uh, yes, yes. Good luck, Miles. Yeah, yeah. So he's 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 doing his best. He's doing his best. But uh, and we'll see. You know, thirteen starts. So this is a stupid thing. The record for most starts in a season with without a win is Ryan Stanek as an opener. Stupid. Hate that. But Espino is second with 19. So Espino last year, even though he didn't end up having the most innings, he's up there with 19, and Lyles is already at 13. So that will, will he might you know we'll see we'll see over the next few months if he can make some history. <laughs> Sorry, Hale Central. All right. Uh, on that note, we are going uh, to wrap things up here. Uh, thank you, Emma, for for joining me for this. Uh, softball barbacast um, uh, edition <laughs> of the show on a Friday. Uh, first of all, where can people uh, find your work? And then I will uh, close this out. Yeah, I am on SI.com and sometimes in Sports Illustrated Magazine under my name, Emma Bachelary, which is also where I'm on Twitter. So make sure uh, you support Emma's work. She's been one of our favorites for quite some time and uh, the softball coverage is only a bonus. So thank you, Emma, for joining me and and being a a special co-host. Thank you to Chris Tyler for producing and providing us with way more uh, names for toes than we ever could have asked for, as always. Jake Mintz, remember him. He will be back next week, hopefully, I believe, on Monday. And there's a lot of other stuff going on in baseball that we have not covered here because I wanted to talk about the Sooners. I think when Jake gets back, we're going to do a, Jake, you were in France. Here's all the things you missed. So we'll see if we we didn't touch on something you wanted us to hit on. Hopefully we'll get to it on Monday. Uh, But until then, have a wonderful weekend and we will talk to you soon. Serious XM Podcasts.